0: One of the components of, of going through a book of the Bible in the way that we do, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is that sometimes where we leave off necessitates a little bit of a running start back to where we are. Such is the case with Matthew chapter 20. In, in fact, the last verse of chapter 19 should be included in chapter 20. It sets the stage for a story that Jesus tells, but for us to unpack the last verse, we gotta get. A little bit of context established. So we're going to backtrack just a little bit into chapter 19. If you were with us last Sunday, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, We are just a few weeks away from the cross. He's left the Galilee, his home base. He's left Capernaum. He's making his way. The end is nigh. God's plans, God's purposes uh, are, are nearing their completion. As he's making his way, Jesus encounters, again chapter 19, a young rich ruler, the rich young ruler. And he has this fascinating exchange. This moral man comes to Jesus with the right question. What must I do for eternal life? Now this man's whole perspective was based on his efforts and his energy, the law and obedience, earning, goodness. And Jesus deconstructs this. And really works its way down into the issue. While the man might have been faithful in an elementary sense to the second half of the commandments. Dealing with man's interaction with his fellow man. The man had fallen short in the first section of the law. Dealing with man's relationship with God. Illustrated by Jesus' invitation to follow me. Predicated upon getting rid of what really was his God. His stuff. Jesus tells him. You want eternal life? You don't even have to wait till you die for it. I give it to you right now. Come and follow me. But to do that, Jesus knowing the heart of this man, you've got to lay aside who is functionally your God. Who you place your security into, your trust into, your stuff. And we're told that the man leaves very sorrowful. This man was a righteous man, a good man. He was rich. He was young. He was powerful. People looked at this man and thought, man, if there's anybody that can get themselves to heaven on their own merit, that man can do it. And yet Jesus turns him away, and the man leaves, and Jesus doesn't run after him. He lets him go, which prompts a question from the disciples, the obvious one. If that guy can't get in, can anyone? And Jesus is like, well, it depends on how you're trying to get in. Jesus makes this statement. It's an amazing verse. Verse 26, he says, With men, if it's about humanity, man being good enough, man earning it, man trying to achieve it, it's impossible. With man, it's impossible. However, with God, all things are possible. Following Jesus. So Peter, verse 27, said to him, Well, we've left all and followed you, therefore what do we get? You gotta give it to Peter. It is a, a brazen question. Within the context of the rich young ruler not being willing to sell everything to follow Jesus, Peter's like, Well, wait, we did. What do we get? They really didn't. I mean, they didn't give up everything. Peter saw it a wife, saw a house. Jesus stayed in his house in Capernaum. Not only that, but between the resurrection and the ascension. Where do we find Peter? We find Peter back at his boat. He didn't sell his boat. He says, well, we've given up all to follow you. No, no, you really didn't. Now Jesus skirts that. And he says, he says, assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, that's a fascinating word, only used one other time in Scripture, speaking of the consummation of all things, when the kingdom is established, when Jesus sets all wrongs right and ushers in peace in the regeneration when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus is speaking specifically to the apostles here. We find that in the book of Revelation confirmed, that the apostles themselves in the millennial reign of Jesus will have a specific, unique uh, role, authority. They will sit on thrones there with Jesus. So while maybe verse 28 is specific to them, the crowd at hand, verse 29 opens it. He says, but everyone, everyone, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or child or lands for my sake? Anybody that's given up something to follow me. Jesus makes a promise shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Within this verse, we find an important concept about God. First, there, there should be an encouragement. There is a reward in heaven. I hope you know that. Whatever sacrifices you make, and there are many, to follow Jesus. Whatever temporary pleasures you forgo. Whatever things you let you lay aside. You know, the author of Hebrews will say, you know, let us run the race with endurance. Laying aside the sin and the weight. Which so easily ensnares us. And there's a qualification within that. Yes, in order to follow Jesus faithfully, there are times where we have to lay aside Obviously, sin, sin gets in the way, doesn't it? That work Jesus is wanting to do in our lives, sin, is a problem. So we should lay aside sin, that's easy. But then the author of Hebrews says that we should lay aside weight, which is a contrast or an addition, something additional to sin. Interesting, that there are things in our lives that aren't sinful. There are things in our lives that aren't bad. There might even be things in our lives that are good. But are they slowing us down from following Jesus? sin, that is obvious, but to wait. So we will make sacrifices to follow Jesus. It's the nature of the process. But Jesus gives us a promise. I got you. Whatever you lay aside, whatever you forego, the, the day will come, I will reward you. Anyone that makes a sacrifice, anyone that, fa- I will reward you a hundredfold. And that tells us something about God. Yes, we have a heavenly reward, But in addition to a heavenly reward, we learn that God will be a debtor to no man. God is not not in debt to anyone. And then there's an old saying, it's a bit cliche, but it applies, that you can't ever, as a result of this dynamic, outgive God. There's a fundamental truth to this. God will be a debtor to no one. No one will ever be able to say, God, I gave all of this, And you only gave that. It's kind of disproportional. I kind of, you know, you kind of owe me. No one can ever stand before God and say, you owe me. Why? Not because God has shortchanged you, but because the abundance of what he gives outshadows anything you may have sacrificed. God will be a debtor to no man. And practically in our own lives, this we find to be true. You know, sometimes the chat actually in his opening kind of uh, did a great job of setting the stage for sometimes there's ideas within scripture that they give and take, they pull on each other, right? Uh, On one aspect, we, we, we say, hey, you should give to God. You should give back to God a first fruit. Not wanting God to bless you, that's not the motivation. We don't give back to God to get from God. It's a response. It's a reaction. God gives to me and I, in response, like, I give right back. Yes, not predicated upon God's blessing. If you if you're here, Pastor, you give, so you can get. No, that's not the idea. Now, what's the truth? What's the kind of the yang to the yang? Well, God does, he'll be a better debtor to no man. God, in response to your gift, in response to his gift, will give you more. <laughs> so you can't outgive God. And that should never be the motivation, but it is the result. You know, thinking through this, this idea, a practical way of illustrating it hit me. The Lord spoke to me a few weeks ago. So my son, they, they had school off. He wanted a buddy to come spend the night. Spend the night, okay. So, and he was real adamant. We even gave him a few chores, a few responsibilities. Okay, you can earn this. You, can, you do these things, and, and your buddy can come over. And so his buddy came over, spent the night. And it was actually they were they were they were great. We 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 blessed my son. And the night was great. They didn't stay up too late. They didn't eat too much junk. We let them have fun. It was good. But they were well behaved. It doesn't always happen. But in this particular instance, it it was refreshing, you know. You allow your friend to have a, a, a buddy come over and it's not it's not a terrible experience. In fact, it was actually quite delightful. And so I took uh, Quincy, I took his buddy, we took his buddy home, we dropped him off, Quincy jumps in the front seat of the truck, we're heading home, and Quincy said, Dad, thank you so much for letting my buddy come over and and spend the night, thank you so much. Now in that moment, what did I want to (laughs) do? He can come over next week, son. Like, I'm the father and, I, and my son, and I gave my son a blessing, right? Blessing. And in response to that blessing, he demonstrated back to me a thankfulness, a gratitude. And what did that spawn in the heart of the father? I want to give you more blessing. And parents, you probably understand this. You'll tell your kid, like, uh, you have no idea what all, what types of goodness I would love to give you. If you just weren't a jerk. <laughs> like you don't realize I could be your best buddy. We could go play golf three times a week. I'll check you out of school early. We can get into all kinds of fun trouble. If you just won't be a snotty nosed little punk. If you'll obey your mama and you'll clean your room. If you'll, de- if you'll demonstrate a thankfulness and a gratitude. There's no limitation to the blessings that I want to pour out. And I thought... Isn't that how it is with God? God blesses us. We don't deserve it. And if our reaction to that blessing is thankfulness, and however that manifests, it can manifest in worship, it can manifest practically in just giving back, blessing others. And God's like, yeah, that's, all I, that's what I want out of you. So I want to give you some more. You see how that works? God will be a debtor to no man, but you can't outgive God if your heart is gratitude. God is looking, God is looking for conduits that He can bless others. That's the way this works. Yeah, God could supernaturally drop out of the sky a big pallet of gold bullion. And take care of all the needs of the church would need to happen because the hole in the roof would have to get repaired. I mean, God could just supernaturally drop it down. And man, okay, we got all we need. Let's roll. But that's not how he does it, is it? Instead, God provides for his church for through people. Through you, through me. Why? Because he has to? No, he can do whatever he wants. But because he wants to include you in the blessing and the process. And so when, when God looks at one of his kids, and he, and, he's, and he's blessing, and their reaction is, is to bless, he's like, oh, yeah. So what does he do? Huh, I ain't giving that kid nothing else. Cutting him off right now. No. He gives more. And the reaction is blessed, and he gives more because he's looking for people that get it, that enjoy it, that, that, that are blessed and then want to bless. See how that works? So Jesus says, hey, okay, you guys, (laughs) Peter, you you didn't really give all, but let's forgo that. I'm going to reward you. There's reward, but you can't outgive me. And then we get to the last verse of chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, Jesus is talking about his kingdom. He's talking about... the allocation here. He's talking about the way that this works. And this is kind of a really radical verse. Again, many who are first will be last. Not all, just many. So it's kind of a rule of thumb, not a, not a law, in regards to the, many who are first will be last. The last, first. And what makes it radical is that's not how the wor- world works at all. Does it? You run a race, you know who's last? The fat kid with asthma. Why? Because he's slow. <laughs> the last—they don't. The last kid to cross the finish line. There's not a, a reward for. You did it. You did it. Nope. Matter of fact, like he's crossing. The, they're shutting down the lights. Only people are there are, are the people that got to get him home. His teammates have left. The last aren't first. And it's not as though that the first person across, like, hey, I, that, that was a great right here in the back. No, no, it doesn't, it doesn't practically work this way in the world. But Jesus is not of this world, and he's ushering in the kingdom. And you read through this, and you're like, man, the first, last, last, first. I don't get it, Jesus. Well, that's okay, because he's now going to tell us a story to make us more confused. <laughs> Verse 1 of chapter 20. Again, seamless, that flows from, from, there shouldn't be a chapter break. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So the context is we're introduced to a landowner who's got a vineyard. And the idea is that it's harvest time, And he needs to reap the crop. Now, to do this, again, um, in its ancient context, you had to have pickers. There were no machines you could rely on. You had to go out and get day laborers who would go out and would pick grapes for a wage. This was customary. Again, Jesus' audience would be very familiar with this process. Now, verse 2, when the landowner had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So the guy wakes up early. The day would start at 6 a.m. and it would be a 12-hour shift, go from 6 to 6. It's how it would work the full day, sun up to sundown. We got, we got, I got a crop. There's a harvest. I got to get on it. So he gets in his pickup truck, drives down to Home Depot. I need some day laborers. And the day laborers are there, and they're like, "Hey, this is great. We'll go. We'll, we'll, we'll pick it, buddy." But there's a negotiation that happens, according to the verse 2. They're, they're negotiating a wage. Again, when he had agreed, hey, 50 bucks, no, nah, that's not enough. 125. Ah, th- that's crazy. They settle on a d- a day's wage, a denarius. Think of it about $100, a day's wage for a laborer. Hop in the back, we got a deal, drops them off, they go to work verse 3 and he went out about the third hour so now it's 9 a.m. so group 1's been working for 3 hours it's now 9 and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace so he said to them you also go into the vineyard and whatever whatever is right i will give you so they went we don't know the motivation of the landowner in regards to maybe he's noticing that this is never going to get done in time. I didn't get enough guys. I need more. But he goes, he gets more laborers. Now, notice there's no there's no negotiation. They're not settling on 100 bucks for the day's work. In fact, it's kind of like the honor system. If you guys want to go work? It's not a full day, three hours short. It's nine. But I'll, I'll, I'll be fair. All right, that sounds great. So they go. Verse 5, again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour. So he does this two more times and did likewise. So now he goes out at noon, and then he circles back at 3. So group 1's been working since 6 a.m. Group 2 since 9 a.m. Now we got another group at noon, another group at 3. And then, verse 6, About the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Like, by this point in the story, Jesus' audience, they're standing there like, all right, this this is stupid. Like, no one would do this. Like, this is not how it works. 6 a.m., 9, 12, 3. Now you go at the 11th hour. It's 5 o'clock. The sun goes down at 6. The day's over. We're talking he goes out and gets more guys for an hour. For an hour. Again, he repeats what he said to the earlier group. Whatever is right, you will receive. So evening comes. (laughs) Hour passes. The owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers, give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. Now, again, this is starting to connect the idea, right? Beginning with the last to the first. So line them up, last to first. So the guys that had the initial deal at 6 a.m. for a, a day's wage of $100, bucks, they are at the end of the line. The guys that have been just working an hour at the front of the line, everybody's in between. So we understand how that, that process is. And when those who were hired, verse 9, about the 11th hour... They each received, Jesus says, a denarius, 100 bucks a day's wage. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, but they likewise received a denarius. Now, the the implications here, the guys in the back that had been working for 12 hours all day, covered in dirt, sweat, we've been picking. They're at the back of the line. Now, they had an agreement, $100. Everybody else didn't really have an agreement. It was a handshake week, week, I'll take care of you. So these guys at the end, they're watching how this, well, the guys only work for an hour. They get $100. (laughs) Heck yeah. That means what? There will be more for us later. That's, That's the logic. That's the reasoning. But what happens? They get up, and they're given $100. Everybody's, whether you worked an hour or you worked 12, everyone got $100. Everyone got the same regardless of where they were at in order. Verse 11, so when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, the the last men have worked only one hour, so they state the obvious. You made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But the landowner answered one of them, and he said, friend, I'm not your enemy, friend. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So again, the landowner is just like, wait, we had an agreement, didn't we? When I picked you up this morning, we had a, we had a, we shook on it. You signed the the dollar, hundred bucks. You thought that was fair. I thought that was fair. We rolled with it. So what's it to you that I pay anybody else whatever I want to pay them? You and I had an agreement. 12 hours, $100, you didn't have a problem with that this morning. But now you have a problem with it because if you don't think I'm being fair. He says, take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to the last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? And, and the, the, the evil eye, it's, are, are you jealous? It's a jealousy. Are you, are you bent? And then Jesus closes the story. He says, So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. So what is Jesus saying? I do think that there's probably a a macro idea that rubs some fundamentalists a little wrong concerning the essence of salvation, that there are some that get saved at a young age and they spend their whole lives working for the Lord, serving, following, sacrificing. They realize they don't don't have to, but they've entered in, you died for my sins, man, I've been given a gift, I, I, I'm so humbled by it. And when they die, they enter glory, eternal life, this gift, the gift that the rich young ruler is inquiring about, that the disciples ask about, like the big gift, eternal life. From a young age, isn't it glorious to see a 7, and 8, 9-year-old, when they're reaching that point that they're understanding things, to give their life to Jesus? To say, I want my whole life, I, like I don't, I don't need to go and run around in the world to already know the world's got nothing for me, and it's all in Jesus. But then, what often tweaks people a little bit is the very concept of the deathbed confession. That the person that lives their entire life rejecting Jesus, resisting Jesus, wanting nothing to do with Jesus, spends their whole life saying, I, I, I'm not interested. And then on their deathbed, when they know they're not going to get up and they start evaluating their life and they start reaching the conclusions that it was a waste, the damage they inflicted, what they had sac- how meaningless it was that they had lived a life without purpose. And then they're like, you know, will Jesus accept me? And the answer is yes. Give your life to Jesus. And boom, they get the same reward life. That the person. And you know, a lot of people we have a problem with that. Why? Two things. We don't know God and how he works, because it's different than us. Th- God doesn't care about fairness. Same reward. You know, in Bible college, there was an, an older fella named Ted. Don't know his last name. At the time he was 70 years old, had made millions, Silicon Valley area, lived up towards Modesto, made millions of dollars, and had gotten saved at the age of 70. Got saved. And you know what the guy decided to do? Retire and go to Bible college. No kidding. Bible college is it's a bunch of 18, 19, 20 year olds and Ted. Ted's wife had passed away. He was a widow had just given his life to Jesus, had this really cool testimony. And what he would do is he'd wake up early Monday morning, fly his private plane down, and would live on campus in the dorm, the dorms with everybody else. Everybody's having an old man, Ted. And I remember talking to Ted. And then Friday he'd fly back, spend the weekend at home. I remember telling Ted, I said, Ted, What a cool testimony. What a cool testimony. You gave your life to the Lord, now you're going to Bible college, and you want to see what God has. he He goes, no, it's not, Zach. He goes, I'd give anything to have yours. That from a young age, you gave your life to Jesus, and you spend your whole life walking with him. That, that is a testimony. We think about testimony. Like we hear about, you know, you know, I was a stripper at seven. I was addicted to heroin by nine. And then I had this radical conversion at 15. I've been in Africa. You're like, whoa, that's awesome. I wish I had a testimony like that. No. Ted was like, you don't. In fact, Ted made the comment he goes, you know, your testimony doesn't start until you give your life to Jesus. Then it starts. My testimony's about a year's worth. You got a whole life in front of you. I thought, change my perspective on a testimony. There is is a basic idea being presented here that when it comes to everlasting life, Jesus doesn't care when you start following. And the reward in that sense is the same. But then there is this other idea tucked into it. None of these laborers deserved anything, did they? None of them owned the field. In fact, they don't go to the field inquiring for work, asking for work. The landowner goes out of his way to get in his pickup truck and go to Home Depot or Lowe's, however you fall on that spectrum and say, hey, I could use some laborers. You guys, you want to work? The landowner initiates every part of the process and the guys that start at 6 a.m., there was a deal for 100 bucks, he keeps going back and everybody gets the same. And they're like, having a problem with it. He's like, it's mine. Just be glad you got $100 because you didn't deserve it. I picked you. That's why he closes. He says, says, for many are called but few are chosen. I chose you, I invited you, What's the reward? That's all me. In fact, your problem, people have a problem with grace when this happens. They get their eyes off of Jesus and onto someone else. That's when you start comparing. You start saying, well, that's not fair. You only say that's not fair when you've lost touch with the reality none of it's fair because Jesus had to die. When we're standing at the cross, it's all level ground. Doesn't matter when you get there, it's that you're there. But then we start looking at other people. We start judging by other people. And we get ourselves, we start to complain. You'll hear people that will say, hey, you should be careful, pastor. You can take grace too far. If you say that, you just revealed you have no idea what grace is about. You have no concept of grace. For you can never, you can never, ever take grace too far. In fact, we get into problems when we don't take grace far enough. When we go so far and then we start looking around and we start trying to build our own moralism again. You can never take grace too far. We get in trouble when we don't take it far enough. We get in trouble when we, as the laborers, start to look at, t- we look around. There's another component to the story, and again, I might be reading a little too far into it. Pardon me, it's my Bible study. I, I highlighted, I highlighted four sentences. They jumped jumped out at me. Verse 2, now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, and then you jump down to verse 13, and what does he say when they're complaining? He says, did you not agree for a denarius? We agreed, did we not agree? Now in between all of that, there's no agreements, right? Instead the labor, the the landowner pulls up, hey, hey, whether it's at 9 a.m., at noon, at three, or at five, he pulls up. You guys want to work? Does anyone say? yeah, How much? No. He pulls up, like you want to work? Yeah, that's great. I'll, I'll I'll treat you fairly. Jump on in. Again, I highlighted two times it's mentioned. Verse four, whatever is right, I give you. Verse seven, whatever is right, you will receive. Could the problem have been that this first group of laborers could have ended up with more, but they negotiated to start with? What what do I mean? So this first group comes, and they reach an agreement. At the end of the day, here was the arrangement. Everybody in between was like, I don't I don't actually care when I'm paid, because you know what? I trust the landowner. He's going to treat me fairly. I don't need you to promise something. I don't need you to promise to give me something for me to go work, for me to go serve, for me to go be a part of the harvest. I don't need to enter into an arrangement, an agreement, an accord. I just trust you. And so you get to the rewards, and it's like, Full days, baby. You worked one, full days. You worked full days. And then you get to the one group that had an arrangement. He's like, full days. And they complained. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say you can't outgive God. Trust him and don't feel the need to make an accord. Practically. happens all the time doesn't it we find ourselves in a situation a predicament a quandary of sorts and we get on our knees man isn't it crazy how we spend more time passionately with god when we want something what a terrible relationship but we're passionate i mean when the crisis hits you're on your knees Begging God for intervention. And you know what you'll do? You'll make promises. It's natural. It's natural, it happens. You feel as though, hey God, I know you're good. I know you love me. I know you will take care of me. But let me sweeten the deal a little. And often we overpromise. God, if you'll just give me that wife, I'll sell everything, we'll move to Africa, live in a hut, tell people about Jesus. The Lord's like, <laughs> wasn't necessary. And he gives you the wife, and you're like, yeah, you know that promise I made? There was a little clause at the bottom, God, you might have missed it. But we make promises, don't we, all the time. All the time. See, I think part of the parable is, is like God does things differently, and we should approach Him differently. We're not bartering with Him. We're not in a negotiation. We're called, and we respond, and we leave whatever happens next to Him. Sometimes the last or first, and the first or last. But you know what's great is the last or the first end up in heaven where there's a reward of a hundredfold. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road, and he said to them, behold... And again, it's kind of Matthew's favorite word. Behold. I should start using that one. Behold. We have a baseball game today. Behold. It's a cool word. The idea is like, stop and think about it. I can't snap, so imagine it. Jazz hands. Let me get your attention for a moment. That's what's happening. We're on the way to Jerusalem. Guys, powwow. Just for a moment. Behold, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. No kidding, Jesus. There's the sign pointing to Jerusalem. But he continues. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge, to crucify. But the third day he will rise again. Again, this is Jesus' third time. Making it clear to his disciples what's coming. And every time he adds a few more details, in this instance about the scourging and the mocking. Guys, we're going to Jerusalem. It's not going to play out like you think. I'm going to tell you how it's going to play out. In another passage, we're told that that they understood him not, they just didn't get it. What is Jesus going to do? In essence, We'll close with this thought that Jesus is going to take our place in death so that we can take his place in life. That's his mission. I hope you know that. That's what Jesus came to do. The wages of sin, death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And how does that work? Well, the wages of your sin still had to be met. The price they demanded still had to be filled. And your options are very simple. You can pay for the wages of your sin, and that's eternal hell and damnation. Or you can accept that Jesus, who was sinless, took my place on the cross. He bore my sin, and he bore my shame. He died in my place to satisfy what I owed and could never pay. And then this exchange happened. He took my sin from me, and he gave his righteousness back. He took my death, and in exchange, he gave me his life. Is there any reward greater than that? Again, that concept of what Jesus did as the laborers. Hey, man, shouldn't we be excited that someone that comes in at the final hour still gets that blessed result? See what I'm saying? See what Jesus is doing? He's challenging us in a very deep way. So, Father, we just let that settle.